is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand, welcome to the program. NT Parliament is back for 2023. Sittings have resumed today. So what is on the Ag Minister's list of things to do? You'll find out in a moment when we speak to Minister Paul Kirby. The push is on to get the federal government to spend $5.5 billion on fixing roads in rural Australia. Would it be enough, though? Territory cattle producers aren't so sure. Probably not really, not given the state of many of the roads and that. And I know a couple of years ago there was, I think, $300 million given out for rural roads and that, and I don't think much of that trickled down through to central Australia. Also today on the Country Hour, you'll learn about a new plan to eradicate banana freckle from the Northern Territory. This is all coming up before 1.30. Hope you can stick around. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. First up today, let's talk NT politics. Let's talk about agriculture because Parliament is back for 2023. Welcome back to all members of the Northern Territory Parliament as we begin the 2023 sitting meetings. I've always said this is the People's Parliament and I think this is a bit of a record today with having uh, so many people on the floor of Parliament as well as in our, our gallery. So I welcome everybody. Our guest on the Country Hour today is the Territory's Minister for Agriculture, Paul Kirby. A happy first day of Parliament to you. When you look at the year ahead, Minister, what are some of the big topics on your agenda that you think you'll need to start tackling? G'day and, yeah, welcome to everybody. We are busy back in uh, back in Parliament for the year and, yeah, we'll obviously have a host of stuff. Some of it's reactive and, and a lot of it hopefully will be proactive. Some of it around land clearing and things like that that have been brought up over the past uh, couple of months and, um, and then looking into just creating opportunities, making sure that we get those opportunities through um, what was the Keep Plains or the Weber Plains, uh, Wildman, those Larimer, projects to keep them pushing forward. As I said, some of it will be reactive to make sure that uh, of those nasty diseases that we've got just to the north of us at the moment, we'll obviously get some intel over the next couple of months about how far they've travelled um, over the monsoonal uh, seasons and and then a range of stuff with the uh, Aquaculture Centre and trying to promote and progress the great work that they do as well. Okay, biosecurity, land clearing and new development opportunities is what you've brought up there. Uh, just on the Keep, Larimer and Wildman, they were the big three new ag development opportunities. Has a proponent been found yet for Wildman? I do believe that they're working with a preferred proponent at the moment. We're not at a position that, um, and I don't even know the, the name, but I believe there is somebody that has been okay. identified as a preferred proponent and they're working closely with them to, to get through the next few steps in the process. On land clearing, the Environment Centre NT and the Northern Land Council is taking your government to court over land clearing approval to grow cotton on Averne Station. Let's just have a quick listen to Kirsty Howie from the Environment Centre who was on the Country Hour yesterday. Essentially, we believe that a delegate of the Pastoral Land Board that's got uh, the authority to grant land clearing permits has failed to uphold the law by granting a permit to clear land uh, expressly for cotton at Averne Station in the, in the VRD. 
And our argument is that uh, it's that particular crop that falls foul of the Pastoral Land Act because our, we're asserting that cotton is not a pastoral purpose within the meaning of the Pastoral Land Act. So there we go. That's Kirsty Howie. I guess, can you explain to us how come Northern Territory stations can clear land and grow cotton without a non-pastoral use permit? Um, look, that's a really interesting question. And the that portion of legislation sits under the Environment Minister. So it's not something uh, that I've been briefed on yet. We will get briefings uh, on that over the coming weeks. It's also because it's something that will sit before the courts and we'll get, obviously, uh, an understanding when those decisions are made. I understand it was a was a really hot topic uh, uh, a little while ago when that story broke and, you know, we did get a briefing around uh, a range of different things that had claimed to have happened and, and some I know from my briefings that uh, that the pastoralists had absolute capacity within legislation and regulations to, to go ahead and do and, and the, the other things that aren't covered uh, or are being claimed to be illegal, I'll be really cautious about not stepping into that space because yeah, it doesn't it, sit with me and it will be challenged. Does it strike you as odd, though, that a Territory cattle station would need a non-pastoral use permit if it wanted to grow watermelons, it'd need an NPU if it wanted to grow mangoes, but if it wants to grow cotton, it doesn't need one. Does that strike you as odd? Uh, well, yeah, there's some complexities around all of those situations, and if if the cotton as a byproduct from the cotton is the seed is used for feed for cattle and then what is the difference between that and uh, growing hay for cattle and what are the differences between the applications that you need to make uh, for each of those situations. But, it, yeah, certainly will be something that we'll look at uh, through the Environment Minister's office in the, uh, and the Pastoral Land Board and, and look at trying to tidy that legislation and regulations up as much as we can. Do you support the cotton industry? Oh, certainly we know that there's a, you know, a range of opportunities in the Northern Territory. We know that uh, we are growing an amount of cotton in the Northern Territory now. We know that the, the cotton that's grown here is uh, much less reliant on water and much less reliant on pesticides than, than things that were grown down south many, many years ago. You know, we don't allow people extra water to grow cotton. People have a water allocation and, and there's a, a range of those trials and, and moving into, obviously, uh, production with the cotton gin. So we have to look at all ways that we can diversify, not just the ag front, but our economy altogether. And it's certainly going to be a part of the pu uh, puzzle as we go forward. But, but is this cotton industry getting derailed because your government hasn't got the right policy? policies in place? Uh, look, I think you'll find right around the nation that, uh, that people are finding ways with any type of progress to make sure that, you know, there's frustrations um, in place for those. There's some bodies that will believe that, uh, that we shouldn't have any type of development. You know, there are people that won't agree with a, with a lithium mine because we have to put, you know, rock breakers and jackhammers into the ground. But we know that in the long run, the the metals that come out of those types of projects are, are beneficial for electric cars that are much better for the environment. So there, there are certainly checks and balances that have to be in place. We've done a lot of work around regulation, around um, better water regulations and, and how we move forward with all of those matters, strategic water reserves and things like that. So it's certainly something that we'll continue to, 
to work through them. You know, it's just a part of governing in the year 2023. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour, and we're speaking to the Territory's Ag Minister, Paul Kirby. On the topic of water, Singleton Station and its large plans for horticulture to the south of Tennant Creek, what would you like to see happen there on that station this year? Oh, as as soon as possible, we would love to be able to put to bed everybody's concerns around making sure that uh, that water that's going to be accessed there is at a sustainable level. My absolute passion would be that we have you know a range of local people uh, that are working on that farm and um, and have sustainable jobs in a uh, in an ag precinct and and create some real opportunities for Indigenous people in the region. That station sits in the western Davenport region, which right now hasn't got a water plan. It expired in December. Have you got any insight into what is going on there? I know that there's um, some legal term or some legal claims around that as well. So exactly where that's up to, I know the the people um, in charge of that. We did meet with a, a group of their people very recently and you know they're preparing to to try and make sure that the project can move forward whether that be you know at the speed that they were hoping for over uh, over the past couple of years or to be able to break it down into into chunks that they can move forward with over the next couple of years but yeah now we're confident that we'll continue that the you know the science will be proven to be right and we'll be able to continue to move forward now uh, for the first time uh, we've seen this year commercial Barra fishers and mud crab fishers, they've lost access to a stretch of coastline minister that includes the Merganella and the Mini Mini systems. The NT Seafood Council says it's working hard to resolve this matter with the NLC and traditional owners and regain some level of access to that coastline. What role are you playing in all of this? Um, I'll give a bit of an update around where I know those discussions are up to. But the, those negotiations sit with the, uh, the Chief Minister's Department. So we, we have people that are able to sit in on, on briefings and offer some assistance, but uh, my department doesn't lead those negotiations. But we have had some, some good and productive meetings with the NLC late last year for an NTG um, representative to be able to be part of that with the NLC. So, that so you don't get... get a seat at the table yourself because you're the minister that represents commercial fishers, yes? As I mentioned, we have people that are involved, people from my office that are involved uh, in those negotiations, but we don't lead them. Yeah, that uh, certainly uh, the Department of Chief Mins takes the front-facing role in that, and uh, there are very good people from there that have negotiated with the Northern Land Council and made sure they've got the capacity to meet directly with traditional owners, which we just haven't been able to do over the last few years. Now, with I know that there has been uh, some offers put to the traditional owners uh, quite recently before Christmas. And I know that there's some discussion back and forward about exactly where that offer is going to land. So I'm really hopeful and really confident that we are going to be able to get access for those professional fishers and crabbers back into those areas sooner rather than later and that we can use that as a um, then as a capacity to, to, to move more quickly with the negotiations about wreck fishers in, in those sort of areas as well. And finally, the Prime Minister of Timor-Leste was in the Northern Territory last week meeting farmers, signing a strategic partnership. Are you able to provide us with any more detail on what that partnership looks like? Well, yeah, it was a high-level partnership and it was nice to be able to 
to meet with the Prime Minister. We did meet with him and uh, a few other ministers when we took a business delegation over late last year. It's somewhere that obviously for our ag industry through through mangoes and melons and and it's just a an opportunity for us to expand on that. There's just so many workers in uh, in East Timor. It's, it is quite a poor country. The the people that live over there have explained to us that when the money uh, from the mango season, when the money goes from the Northern Territory uh, and it's paid in the people's banks back over there, the line up at the banks are. A couple of blocks long, like it means that much to their economy over there. Is the, is the gas industry involved in this as well? Oh, we know there's some complex discussions uh, going on uh, around their gas industry and what opportunities they might have um, in Timor and what opportunities that might turn into for the Northern Territory who might get the opportunity to work uh, really closely with them. You know, we obviously think that the capacity to bring uh, gas onshore here uh, would be an ability for us to be able to help them out, uh, for them to understand how difficult it actually is to uh, to build and operate plants in their own country is something that will continue to work uh, with them around. And yeah, hopefully we can come to a, uh, a landing in the future that, that helps both of our countries. But for them to be only 45 minutes away and uh, there's some real opportunities there. So we'll continue to work closely with the Timorese government uh, and hopefully help their people out as much as we can. Well, all the best on day one in Parliament for 2023 and thank you for your time on the country hour. Anytime. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Hello, my name is Chris Zolas. I'm the Managing Director of Verted Minerals, the owner of the Amaru Phosphate Project on Amaru Station, south of Tennant Creek, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Yes, big thanks to Minister Paul Kirby for sharing some time for us on what is a busy week. Parliament is back for 2023. As you would know, the government is proposing a $1.5 billion sustainable development precinct out at Middle Arm near Darwin. I know some environmental groups refer to it as a petrochemicals hub that will destroy Darwin Harbour. No matter what you call it, in some news just in, it would seem that Middle Arm has attracted its first tenant. I will tell you all about this after some Keith Urban. Keith Urban on a Tuesday lunchtime. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. It is 13 to 1. Well, has the proposed $1.5 billion development precinct at Middle Arm near Darwin, has it found its first tenant? A resources company with plans to build a large vanadium, titanium and iron ore mine to the north of Alice Springs has today made... A very interesting announcement. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. And, Dan, what can you tell us about Tyvan Limited's plans? Well, firstly, Matt, this company was formerly known as TNG Limited. It changed its name just three weeks ago okay. uh, to Tyvan Limited. Uh, there's been a big change in the management of the company over the last few months, including a, a new executive chairman and a bit of a new direction, a reset of the board. Um, but to the processing plant... Um, 
originally it had planned to build it on Darwin Harbour. Uh, that received a lot of backlash a few years ago from a number of different groups, including Pass Paley. Humpty Doo Barra wasn't a Humpty fan. Humpty Doo Barra Mundy. They had concerns about uh, what might happen to wastewater that would have been potentially discharged into Darwin Harbour. Um, after a fair bit of pressure uh, in September 2021, the company announced it would move the processing plant to its proposed mine site at Mount Peak, around 200 k's to the north of, of Alice Springs. That's right. So instead of processing near Darwin Harbour, do it at Mount Peak, down near the mine. Yeah, yep. that was the change of plans. And now today, Tyvan has announced that it's reached an agreement with the NT government to return to plans to build it in Darwin at Middle Arm. Uh, The announcement on the ASX says, uh, during a review of the company, uh, the board quickly formed the view that the exit from Darwin was principally due to deficiencies in stakeholder and regulatory engagement rather than tangible commercial consideration. Uh, It goes on to say in that announcement that coming back to the Darwin location provides better access to infrastructure, export markets, water, electricity and workforce. Um, And on workforce, it says that uh, this processing facility expects to create around 1,500 jobs during construction and around 1,000 during operation. So, uh, yeah, as we said, uh, the federal government has committed around $1.5 billion to this middle arm precinct. And it seems like Tyvon could be its first tenant there. Yeah, so this is a big turnaround for the company. New name... (laughs) New direction and coming back to Darwin. Yeah, and a big sort of change in the board. Uh, This change in management, it was led by Grant Wilson. Um, He's worked in global finance, a New York-based hedge fund. He's also been a columnist for the Australian Financial Review. And over the last few months, uh, he's been the major shareholder behind a push for this change in management and the board. Uh, He became executive chairman just before Christmas. Uh, Tyvon... It held an AGM uh, just a few weeks ago in late January. Uh, this is what Grant Wilson told shareholders about why he pushed for a management change. The reset starts with the board. There's been a lot of directors that have come in and out of the company, particularly over the last decade. It's like a revolving door, mostly. And most of the time that has not involved much change at the company, certainly not at the executive level, and not in terms of the culture and not in terms of progressing the project forward sufficiently in the eyes of the major shareholders that backed the change campaign. I campaigned on a view from the outside that there was a grave deficiencies in corporate governance, which ultimately, in my view, deserved the term that I used publicly again and again, which was a crisis of governance. And I knew for sure that management were totally disengaged from key stakeholders Uh, in government, in the territory, and in key financial circles as well. So that was my view from the outside, and I held a view from the outside that if really significant change didn't happen, that there was pretty much 100% likelihood that the company would fail and that the failure would be ignominious. That is an unprincipled failure. Grant Wilson, he is the new executive chairman of Tyven Limited. Uh, Speaking there to an AGM in late January, Uh, the company says it's going to set up a Darwin office this month and uh, the ASX announcement said uh, it's going to do some heightened engagement with government, regulators and stakeholders. Big news, Dan. Big news. Interesting news. Thank you very much for that. It is eight to one on the country hour. Just whilst we're talking all things ASX, 
The company that wants to build the big prawn farm out there in the WANT border, Sea Farms, and you're probably aware that this is a company that's faced a lot of challenges in the last 12 months or so. Well, as we go to air this afternoon, it's actually in a trading halt pending an announcement. Now, what could we expect from this announcement? Well, in its message to the ASX, Sea Farms says that it expects to remain in this trading halt until releasing an announcement to the market in relation to the appointment of the administrator is the language used in this announcement to the ASX. So we'll just have to wait and see. But that's sort of interesting language coming out of sea farms there. But yes, have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Jake Stringer. I'm the manager of Kidman Spring Station and you're listening to The Country Hour. Hey, a new plan for eradicating banana freckle from the Northern Territory has been approved by a national management group. Now, this fungal disease, it re-emerged in the Territory last year and has since been found on 52 properties. Dr Anne Walters is the Territory's Chief Plant Health Officer. Uh, Anne, what can you tell us about the latest response plan and, I guess, some of the meetings that you've been having? Yeah, so as uh, the listeners are aware, Matt, um, we had a response plan that was approved by the National Management Group, which is a group made up of each of the state and territories as well as the affected industry parties, and that was approved in July 2022 um, for a six-month period. That response plan basically finished on the 22nd of January, and we have been negotiating uh, for a further response plan. The meeting was held on Thursday um, last week and we were successful in getting an approval for an additional response plan which will take us from February this year until um, October 2024 and we'll see us um, look to eradicate banana freckle from Australia. So this new response plan, does it differ much to what we have seen over the last six months? No, so essentially this response plan includes surveillance, tracing and removals, which is a lot of what we've been doing as well as communications and engagement with the community and with our growers. But the other element to this particular response plan will be area freedom surveillance. So we'll be really looking at collecting as much data as we can to demonstrate that we've managed to get rid of banana freckle from the areas where it has been detected. Because in terms of this disease, what are the current numbers in the Northern Territory in terms of properties infected and the like? Yeah, so we have 52 IPs currently. Um, removals have now been completed on 49 of those premises, um, which has been seen the removal of about 11,800 stems. Um, we now have um, a further three properties that removals are still taking place on currently or are scheduled to take place on, and that's two of the properties on the Tiwi Islands and one at Bachelor. Okay, so 52 known properties that have had banana freckle. How confident are you that... Uh it's under control and there'll be no more spread. Uh, we're really confident that we've got it under control. We expect that we will find additional infected premises just because as we do more surveillance, we're expecting that we will find more properties, but um, that's obviously being covered off in the response plan and we are you know, anticipating that that will be the case. And whilst all of this is going on, and do we have commercial nurseries or commercial farms sending plants and fruit outside of the Northern Territory? 
Um, it's not an area that we do a lot of um, movement of banana plants from the Northern Territory into other jurisdictions. There have been a couple of occasions where one of our growers has sent um, some bananas uh, interstate and we have managed to negotiate for that to happen. So okay. we are still able to trade where um, there is a need um, through you know, specific negotiation. Okay, so the biosecurity walls aren't up. That's correct. They're, they are up into Queensland because Queensland has um, a, par- right. a, a part of their legislation that actually says if banana freckle is detected, nothing can move. But some of the other jurisdictions have been comfortable with receiving bananas that have, we've had surveillance undertaken on. Okay. The two commercial operations that have been caught up in all of this, they've now lost their banana trees. Have you got a sense on how they're going? I think it's a really hard space for growers. Um, Obviously, we have a lot of um, empathy and compassion for the people that are affected by banana freckle or or any other pest and disease. It's it's quite a terrible time for people when they lose their livelihood. Um, And so we're obviously doing everything we can to support and work with them and to uh, help them with their owner reimbursement cost application. And for all of those with a banana tree... In the paddock or in the backyard, what would you like them to know? Look, um, banana freckle um, appears as sort of um, raised brown or black spots on the plant. The, the thing that makes them different is that it feels like sandpaper when you rub your finger on it. Um, if people do have any suspicions that they might have banana freckle, I really encourage them to contact us on 1-800-084-881. Um, the obvious benefit is that, yes, you might have to lose your plant, but we are protecting the rest of the banana industry and that's a really important thing. Others that might have banana front plants um, that can absolutely contribute to our area freedom surveillance. We would also um, encourage people to contact us so that we can capture that data, which will help us to demonstrate that we have successfully eradicated banana freckle from the Northern Territory. Well, thanks for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Get your garden ready for autumn with the March issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Select some gorgeous ground covers, grow herbs for the cooler months and choose your favourite bulbs for spring colour. Learn about gardening on a steep slope, the wonders of compost and the benefits of chook tractors. And read about the amazing revegetation of a tropical Queensland island. Gardening Australia magazine, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. I'm Taylor Hebron. I'm from Tamooming College. I'm at Barrima Export Yards with Matt and you're listening to the Country Hour. Our text number at the Country Hour is 0487 1957 Therese in Catherine says, oh my God, listening to this segment with cotton and polluting Darwin Harbour. One has to wonder what will be left of the Territory in decades to come. This government does not understand the meaning of clean and sustainable. It's insane, reckons Therese in Catherine this afternoon. As we go to where there is a severe weather warning in place for damaging winds and heavy rainfall for people in parts of the Arnhem District and a severe weather warning in place for damaging surf for people in parts of the Arnhem and Carpentaria Districts. We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau in five minutes' time to get the latest on this tropical low in the Gulf of Carpentaria. As always, if you have a question for the Bureau, send it through now and we'll put them straight to them. 0487 is that text number. 
It is now news time, one o'clock. Hello, I'm Frank Shadford from 17 Station. You're listening to ABC Country Hour and I'm training the young youth of program. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. If you're just tuning in, you've missed a lot. You've missed a lot, including a conversation with the Territory's Ag Minister, Paul Kirby. Parliament is back for 2023. It was good to have the Ag Minister on. I've got one text message here that says you should have asked the government what happened to their 600 metre buffer from Daly River Banks. They reduced it to 100 metres. Really? Show the report where that is beneficial. Says someone here on the text. 0487 is our text. The push is on to try and get the federal government to spend $5.5 billion on fixing up roads in rural Australia. Would it be enough? Territory cattle producers aren't so sure. Probably not really, not given the state of many of the roads and that. And I know a couple of years ago there was, I think, $300 million given out for rural roads and that, and I don't think much of that trickled down through to Central Australia. That story coming up very soon on the Country Hour, but first let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter is there this afternoon, and Sally, this tropical low in the Gulf, what's the latest on it? Uh, It's out there. It's not looking overly healthy. There's a a lot of showers and storms in in the Gulf, or mainly showers, but we're not seeing a good rotation on it or anything. It is over water still. So there is still the risk that we could see some development in it and we've only got a low chance of it actually reaching a cyclone before it moves across the coast. Okay. And it's got moisture associated with it. I see Groot Islands had 91 millimetres for the 24-hour period. Croker Islands recorded 38. Um, what's the chance of some of this moisture going inland and, and getting into cattle country? Oh, it's... In the short term, if, if you're sort of in, in the north, we've got dry air coming up around on the western flank, so everything's fairly dry. We've cancelled the flood watch or the finalised flood watch. Over the next few days, this low should start to turn to the south and then come back across the NT. So we, that's probably our best chance of getting the rain down into the Barclay and even across into the Tanami and eventually could see showers and storms. Right, or showers through the southern pass, but showers and storms right through the NT by next week or mid-next week. But we could still see some heavy rain with it as it comes across into the the Barclay and Eastern Carpentaria District from Thursday. There's a severe weather warning in place for damaging winds, heavy rainfall. There's also a a surf weather warning Uh, for people just living along that little stretch of coast there. What would be your advice to them? Well, Basically, just be aware that we do still have some of that severe weather. It is easing, so it's only another couple of days for the damaging wind gusts and that heavy rain around the Groot Island area. And as the low moves further towards the southeast or east, we're going to see those conditions ease with the damaging surf. So basically, just make sure you listen to the emergency services. Just be aware that if you are down near the beach, you could see the... So this could be erosion and things. So things around the coast could could have changed. And if you do get under one of those storms, just be aware that they may still be a little bit gusty and drop a lot of rainfall on you. But we do, along with those warnings, we do have a strong wind warning current still for the basically the eastern part. So Arafura Coast, Gove Peninsula Coast, and the Roper Group Coast today can 
and the Arafio Coast is easing just below strong tomorrow. So the, the Sklow Peninsula and the Rope Group Coastal area, so basically the, the Gulf of Carpentaria, where we could see, still see strong winds tomorrow. Meanwhile, in central Australia, what's the story? Hot. The, we got a low-intensity heat wave down through the Lassiter district, the, extending up into the Tanami and a bit of the Simpson, but the, it's not going, we're not going to really see those temperatures drop all that much until we start getting that cloud cover in early next week. Okay. Anything else we need to be aware of at the moment? No, just the, the usual. Keep an ear out for warnings, particularly as we do have a little bit of severe weather around. And if you're in the top end, so we, even though it's relatively dry now, we might see or should see the showers and storms returning early next week in down south. For those that want rain, there's a chance that we'll get some more showers and storms through the south. And sorry, just because you did mention the C word earlier on, if this low was to turn mm-hmm. into a, a into a cat one, it's sort mm-hmm. of when's the window of opportunity for that to happen? Oh, in the next couple of days. So it's okay. got a very long way to go. It's so it's it's a it's a low chance. It's, it's a low chance. To, okay. to, yeah, yeah. So down to around that ten percent mark, I think. It's, yeah, it's, it's not very likely. Right. Understood. Thanks so much for your time, Sally. That's okay. Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau. This monsoonal trough, it has delivered some good rain in the last few days and for a lot of cattle stations, they'll have their fingers crossed that it can deliver more as we move through the week. At Burnham Creek Station, which is west of Daly Waters, they've had about 90 millimetres this week. Noel Mitchell, he's at the station and says they definitely want more. No, we had a sort of below average wet soap, are We've had a couple of good, um, couple of good ones. We're still behind the average. We've had a couple of nights of about 90 mils. We've been averaging about 25, 30 a night. How is it looking there at the station, at least with this recent rain? Oh, we've got, um, we've got plenty of green feed. You know, everything's looking good. But we sort of normally this time of year, I'm not pumping water for cattle for, uh, for water um, because the you know, in the paddocks we've got a few, um, you get a bit of groundwater so cattle are not hanging around the troughs, but I'm still pumping water. That is Noel Mitchell, who's the caretaker at Burdham Creek Station. In need of some more rain, they're a bit below average there at Burdham Creek. Fingers crossed for a lot of cattle stations in the coming days. Uh, Noel speaking there to Max Rowley. Oh, hello, I'm Debbie. Hello, I'm Benji. Hello, I'm Katie. You're listening to the Country Hour. And on the program yesterday, you heard from Zach Whale from Grain Growers. It has teamed up with some other farm lobby organisations and are pushing the federal government to go and spend $5.5 billion over the next four years to improve the nation's road network. Lots of people have been talking a lot about the state of the roads right across Australia, but it's got to such a critical point that the National Farmers Federation, the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association, the Australian uh, Local Government Association and Grain Growers have come together to really hammer home uh, what's needed in terms of uh, funding right now uh, in the lead-up to the May budget so that we can actually get some of these issues addressed. Yeah, so $5.5 billion over the next four years, that's what this alliance is pushing for. A territory cattle producer who lives in the Tenamai district 
reckons if this alliance gets all of the funding, it still probably won't be enough. Mount Denison Station's Terry Martin says the roads out his way are poor, especially after the rain. Obviously, the Tenamai, we live out, live out down along the Tenamai and it's been sealed up past the moon now and they're still driving with that, which is really good. But um, the dirt roads and that, obviously, you know, it's always hard when <clears throat> everyone's had big rains because, you know, it's hard to decide, right, well, which roads we're going to get to first and their, their volume of water means that there's a lot of work needs to be done on them. But in general, it's about there's been a pretty a lack of attention given to the roads for years and that's why they are in the state they're in now and when you do get big rains like this they're not able to handle the water flowing on them. Could you kind of paint me a picture if you're driving along how many times do you hit your head on the roof of the car? Oh you sort of lose track most of the time <laughs> just poke along steady but it's more you know sort of you're driving along and the windrows up to your window it's generally a good indication of the state of the road you know you can't really put drains in them because the road's lower than the land so the drains just funnel into the roads. The Rural Road Alliance, they are basically lobbying the government ahead of the federal election for $5.5 billion to improve roads, rural roads. Do you think that's going to be enough money? Oh, uh, probably not really, not given the state of many of the roads and that. And I know a couple of years ago there was, I think, $300 million given out for rural roads and that and I don't think much of that trickled down through to Central Australia. Is it though, is it a matter of like anything is better than nothing or? Yeah I mean obviously any, if it's funding's being put towards it, it means it obviously is on their radar, they realise it's an issue and it's just a matter of getting resources. And even if uh, the funding does come to Central Australia, how confident are you that there's going to be um, the people with the skills in the right places to actually do the work? Well, there's plenty of contractors out there and people with the skills to do it, but it, it mainly, yeah, it just comes down to funding. And, you know, you can <clears throat> always, you know, you can do a quick fix there, most roads and that, but if you want to make it last, that's where, you know, it does cost a lot of money to build up roads and that. I think there needs to be a bit more of a coordination with um, landowners and that over, you know, best times to grade a road. Like, obviously... If everyone wants their road graded at the same time, resources are stretched thin, but there's also times when graders are sent out right before you usually get rain, which is just seems like a waste of money if they grade the road and then it rains a week later and all that money's washed away. How much of a difference would it make if you guys did have good roads? Oh, I'd make a massive difference, especially, you know, it would open us up to be able to get in for, like, an MSA grading for cattle because they only have a certain amount of time from when they leave your place to get slaughtered. And at the moment, most also because of the distance, but the general, the time it takes, like, so some of our places we truck out of it will take them four to five hours for the truck to get to the highway onto bitumen. And that might only be a 100k, well, trip, you know, of dirt, but it's taking four to five hours to do that trip. So, you know, that's four to five hours extra that cattle are on the trucks and that, which obviously, you know, they're losing condition, getting stressed. And as well as the toll on the drivers themselves, you know, when you're on a rough dirt road, you're constantly concentrating, you know, can be draining when you have to be that focused all the time. That is Terry Martin from Mount Denison Station speaking there to Victoria Ellis. Now still on roads, Highway 1. 
remains closed in the Kimberley region of WA because of severe damage to the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge. You still cannot get across the Fitzroy. The WA government says it's open to this idea of shipping cattle out of Wyndham in the East Kimberley across to Broome as a way of supplying stock to the Kimberley's only abattoir. WA's new Ag Minister, Jackie Jarvis, says all options are on the table to try and help the Kimberley's cattle industry. I know that we need to get moving on getting cattle back to the Kimberley Meat Company and we are looking at, at all options there. And obviously mustering starts soon, so we need to make sure that we have a mechanism in place to ensure that we can actually get that cattle where it needs to be. We've obviously had a staged opening of that road between Broome and Derby and obviously we're working to get that barge up and running to cross the Fitzroy River. And we're acutely aware as well that we need to get that barge in place and are looking at how we might be able to move cattle across the Fitzroy River. Are cattle at this stage able to move across that barge once it is up and running? So the initial reports are that if we were to move cattle by barge, it would require uncoupling of trailers and and would be time-consuming. Main roads understand that the movement of cattle is a priority, not least because of animal welfare issues. At this stage, the barge option needs to be tested fully and we need to actually work out how we ramp up to bring in those larger trailers on. We actually do need a long-term solution though. So whilst barging of cattle across the Victoria River is possible, we need to work out if this is viable for a long-term solution. So we are happy to work with industry to see if there's any other options with regard to the movement of cattle. One of the options that is being looked at by Kimberley Meat Company and others is shipping cattle from the East Kimberley over to Broome to get it to the to the abattoir. Is that something that you would be open to supporting? Yeah, absolutely. And look, my office as well have had conversations with Kimberley Meat Company and others about whether shipping of cattle is viable. Obviously, again, there are challenges. We need to make sure we have appropriate ships. You know, the type of ships that would normally carry cattle are are overseas flagged live export ships. We need to make sure we can get appropriate ships and also relevantly trained crew. I'm more than happy to look at it. We need to work with industry and make sure we've got appropriate holding facilities. We need to make sure we've got that we can load animals at the relevant ports and get them unloaded. And obviously we need to be mindful of of ongoing animal welfare matters. So we are absolutely working with this. I'm working closely with Minister Safiotti's office as a Minister for Ports about what might need to happen for this to be viable. So we're absolutely looking at that. That is WA's Ag Minister Jackie Jarvis speaking to Steph Sinclair. And if you missed our coverage last week about this idea of shipping cattle out of Wyndham to go up over the Kimberley Coast and down to Broome, that story is up online if you search for ABC Rural. In terms of live exports, from what I can tell, there's just the one live cattle ship due out of Darwin this week. Over in Townsville, a port which has had a very quiet time over the last 12 months, there is a bit of action all of the sudden. Tell you more about that next. Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. It is 23 past one. Now, only 61,000 head of cattle were exported out of Townsville, Queensland last year, which was down about 60% on 2021. It was a very quiet year for exports out of Townsville. Now, those within the live export trade feel those sort of numbers will lift in 2023. And on Sunday, Townsville did see its first cattle shipment of the year with about 5,000 feet of cattle shipped off to Indonesia. Jack Webb from Livestock Shipping Services spoke to Lucy Cooper, 
about this start from Townsville. So this is the first um, shipment of live cattle to, to leave Queensland or Port of Townsville for 2023, um, which has been quite interesting with the, the rain that's been about Queensland, but uh, tremen- tremendous effort from the agents and vendors uh, with the quality and supplier that they've been able to put forward. Has that rain disrupted or set back when it was that initial shipment was supposed to go out? Oh, look, there, was, uh, there wasn't a great delay. Uh, obviously, with rain around, there's always um, a lot of factors that go in uh, and you can't always uh, get the livestock off the property when intended. Uh, but luckily, we've sort of allowed for um, such little changes uh, so to little interrupt our operations. Where do you think 2023 is headed? Um, what are you expecting from this? Yeah, look, we have had a um, significant drop in numbers uh, as previous, and a lot of that has been from the the FMD um, LSD outbreak in Indonesia, um, which uh, with another wave going through, but with increasing uh, vaccination rates and everything, we do anticipate for the export numbers to be higher in 2023, um, and especially with seeing the quality of cattle that have been put forward to us uh, still in the wet season. Uh, we're really looking forward to see what can be done this year. That is Jack Webb, the Operations Manager for Livestock Shipping Services. Live exports out of Townsville, underway for 2023. That ship leaving on Sunday and is on its way to Indonesia. In some other livestock news... Well, out on the board, the blade shearer stands, grasping his shears in his thin Yes, Meat and Livestock Australia has today released its forecast for Australia's sheep flock. Dan Fitzgerald joins me again in the studio. The sheep industry on the up, hey, Dan? Yeah, good news uh, for sheep producers. Uh, the MLA is predicting Australia's sheep numbers will hit a 16-year high. The national flock is expected to reach 78 million head this year. Woo. That would be the highest level since 2007 uh, and MLA is also expecting that to lead to record exports this year. Uh, MLA analyst Ripley Atkinson, he says sheep numbers have seen a big turnaround quickly. So in 2020 following the drought the flock got to 64 million so we've grown by nearly 15 million within the space of, of four years. Weather is the key driver you know, of, of how the the market's performed and how we've seen that really strong improvement in numbers. And what weather has done for Australian sheep producers is is given those optimal conditions for reproductive performance for those females. You know, there, there was a lot of ewe lambs joined um, and that continues to be every year. A lot of ewe lambs joined. The um, availability of grass and water supports better marking rates, which is giving us larger lamb crops. And then, you know, also beyond that, that, that medium-term confidence promoted by price is incentivising producers to grow their numbers to capitalise on, on where the market sits and then obviously as well that international demand. Ripley Atkinson, he is an analyst with Meat and Livestock Australia. Uh, it's also expecting lamb slaughter numbers to increase to 22.6 million head this year. So will that mean cheaper cuts of lamb? We'll have to wait and <laughs> <Hopefully>, see. <laughs> hopefully. I'm surprised Ripley was on the radio today. I'd heard he'd fallen asleep after counting all those sheep. Do you get it, Dan? <laughs> do, do you get it? Yes. Yes, I do, Matt. <laughs> Let's head to the sale yards. 
And numbers were well and truly up at Roma. With all the latest prices, here's Sam Hart. Worsening seasonal conditions across southern Queensland pushed numbers up to 7,000 head in Roma this week, which included 2,000 head from central and northern New South Wales. Overall quality was good, and despite the extra numbers, buyer support remained firm on heavy and medium-weight steers. However, lightweight restocker steers eased again. Heifers were still selling at the time of this interim report. Lightweight restocker steers were firm to slightly cheaper, selling to 556.2, with most around 485 cents. Restocker steers were selling to 508.2, to average around 452. Medium weight steers returning to the paddock maintained prices, selling to a top of 470.2, with most around 420 cents. Heavy feeder steers sold to similar prices as last week, making to 418.2 to average around 385 cents, and a limited number of bullocks sold to 366.2 to average 355. This has been Sam Hart, the National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Sam. In the live export trade, just the one cattle ship due out of Darwin this week, from what I can tell. Feeder steers to Indonesia via Darwin are fetching around $4.20 a kilo. I'm told feeder heifers are getting around $3.90 a kilo. There's been a quote posted for ex-Charters Towers in Queensland. The feeder steers out of there getting $4 a kilo. Just a reminder, there is a severe weather warning in place this afternoon for damaging winds and heavy rainfall for people in parts of the Arnhem District. Updates throughout this afternoon via the ABC, your emergency broadcaster. And if you missed the top of the program today, then you missed our conversation with the Territory's Ag Minister, Paul Kirby. Parliament is back for 2023. What is set to keep the Ag Minister busy. We spoke land clearing, we talked fishing, development opportunities and plenty more. That conversation will be up on our podcast later on this afternoon if you did miss it. And that's it for today. Keep it rural.